Hi, welcome to the Paket Pişir Podcast. My name is Orhan Ergün. Today we are going to talk about Multicast. With me today I have uh, Mr. Multicast. For those who are familiar with or who are interested with Multicast, you know him as Mr. Multicast, Bob Williamson. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about yourself? Certainly. I'll go back a little bit in the history. I started with uh, multicast in um, the late 90s uh, when I was working for Cisco. Uh, very few people were using it, and uh, I got involved with it because uh, one customer was trying to use it, and uh, I found that uh, very few people understood it, and certainly I didn't at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, from that, uh, I enjoyed uh, working with it and found it challenging and uh, began to focus on multicast as a corporate consulting engineer in the uh, office of the CTO at Cisco mm-hmm. and then began to do a lot of training, uh, do a lot of classes, uh, a lot of lecturing, and a lot of consulting with customers uh, using multicast. Uh, all around the world, and uh, quite frankly, I just had a marvelous time doing that. I really enjoyed my time uh, while I was at Cisco doing that. You so you are the, uh, also author of developing IP multicast networks, correct? That's correct. Uh, I, I I wrote that book as but during that time. Um, it, it's it's interesting that. Uh, It took me 18 months to write that book. I didn't expect it to take so long. Mm-hmm. But the reason it took so long was, uh, at the time, I thought, well, it'll be easy. I'll just take the existing documentation. I'll take the text of the RFCs that describe uh, the PIM protocol, and I'll translate that into human speak, and uh, we'll have a book. Well, it turns out... Mm-hmm that the RFC was horribly wrong uh, and, and unimplementable, as Cisco had found out. And so I spent 18 months uh, in the depths of the actual uh, iOS C code, learning exactly how the state mechanisms of multicast worked. And that's why it took uh, 18 months to, uh, to write the book. But I think um, a lot of people would agree that uh, there was very useful information, and I've had that feedback over and over again. Yeah, definitely. But uh, almost 15 years uh, from the Volume 1, why you didn't continue for the Volume 2? I'm glad you asked that. Uh, there's mm-hmm. an interesting story. There, originally, there was never intended, or at least on my case, I had never intended to write a Volume 2 mm-hmm. after doing 18 months' worth of work. Uh, and by the way, anybody that d- decides to write a, a, a good Cisco press book, uh, you can count on some serious uh, effort involved with this. But after 18 months of work, I really had no intention to write a second volume. And as I completed mm-hmm. the, the developing IP multicast uh, networks, I was contacted by two other guys inside of Cisco who were dying to take the topic of multicast Uh, beyond what I had written. And they wanted, for name recognition, to have my name on the book. And so they asked if I would write a chapter or two. So my uh, my name would be one of the authors on the book. Mm-hmm. And I told them at the time, I said, okay, as long as I'm only doing one or two chapters, because I'm not going to do a whole new book. They said, oh, no, that's fine, that's fine. And I said, all right, then we'll call my book Volume 1. 
and I'll inform the, the uh, Cisco Press people to title it as such. Mm-hmm. And this second book will be called Volume Two. Well, that's what we did. But definitely, so after, definitely, but we, your name uh, will be enough for the multicast book, right? <laughs> well, they they figured with my name on it, would it would help sell their book, and I didn't have any problem with that. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I agreed to do that. Unfortunately, shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. I contacted him and said, all right, now we've got to do an outline. We've got to figure out who's going to do what. Uh, I'm kind of thinking about maybe I'll do this chapter or that chapter. Uh, which chapters are, is, uh, is the first guy going to work on? Which chapter is the second guy going to work on? And I began to get nothing. And mm-hmm. finally, I began to pressure them, and I said, what's going on? Are we doing this or not? And that's when I began to get the excuses of, well, gosh, I've gotten awfully busy in my life, and on and on and on. The bottom line was, they didn't follow through. And I looked at it and thought, oh gosh, we've done a volume one. Maybe I should go ahead and do this myself. But it was just more work than I really wanted to tackle on my own. So Uh that's why there's no volume two. Okay, but they continue, I believe, right? To the project? No, there's... There is actually a couple of new guys, not the original ones I was talking about, uh-huh. uh, who are in the active process of writing uh, a very comprehensive multicast book uh, for Cisco Press. Uh, I'm, I'm hearing rumors that it's going to be over 850 pages long. Uh, I looked at the outline. It was wow. very comprehensive. So... There's a new one coming out, but it just won't be uh, a Bo Williamson Developing IP Multicast Networks Volume 2. Then uh, there is no, right now, uh, any book project for you, you can say? No, not at the moment. I was considering with Cisco Press doing a uh, second edition, uh, an update of mine, but due to uh, uh job commitments and some things that were up in the air, I was not able to start on it uh, when Cisco Press wanted me to. And they had these two guys uh, ready and raring to go to begin work on uh, their multicast book. So the decision was taken by Cisco Press to go ahead and go with them as opposed to uh, having me do a second edition. Now, having said that, mm-hmm. uh, I'll be interested to see what this book looks like. And there's still a possibility that I may, uh, on my own, go off and do an update to the original book and then submit it to Cisco Press or somebody uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, to, to update some of the material. But I suspect from what I saw of the outline, these guys are going to cover the topic matter uh, very well, hopefully. Hopefully you do also. Hopefully you continue and uh, I will be the first buyer. Definitely. <laughs> okay. Uh, let me talk about our agenda today. Then let's start, okay? Uh, today's agenda, we will talk about general use cases for multicast. Why we should use multicast? Who are really using multicast? And then we will talk about technology, layer 2, layer 3 multicast. We will talk about IGMP version 2, version 3 for the IPv4 uh, version 4. Then uh, all protocol-independent multicast modes 
such as dense sparse mode, sparse dense mode. Then flavors of uh, protocol independent multicast. Uh, we will not talk about DVMRP or uh, any other legacy uh, routing multicast routing protocols. Uh, we will talk about uh, flavors of PIM then, uh, ASM, SSM, what is any source multicast, what is source specific multicast. Also uh, for the sparse mode, uh, we know the rendezvous point is very important then how we can uh, load balance, how uh, we can achieve redundancy for rendezvous points, what is any case RP concept, uh, what is MSDP, Phantom RP, those kind of stuff. Uh, we will talk about application in the data center specifically uh, which use IP multicast as transport such as OTV uh, and VXLAN so on and so forth. Lastly, we will talk about uh, IP version 6 multicast. Uh, let's start. Right. Why multicast? Why I should uh, consider to use multicast on my network? Well, the, the biggest reason that somebody might want to use multicast is to deliver um, data. Mm -hmm. Typically, uh, it's multimedia data, but not always, uh, from one, one source to multiple receivers. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the classic uh, example, of course, is video, broadcast video event. Uh, but it's not limited to just broadcast video event. In the financial markets, they use multicast to distribute stock market ticker information to a, a large number of recipients. Um, in addition, uh, there's uh, other models for data delivery uh, by TIBCO and uh, other uh, companies that provide a a data distribution mechanism using the multicast model. Mm -hmm. And finally, the, the financial uh, companies often actually do trading via multicast, if I understand their applications correctly, where uh, you really have a many-to-many -many sort of relationship where all of the traders are, you know, doing, you know, bids to sell or buy via multicast analogy would be if you've ever seen video of the stock market floors where you have all of the traders wildly gesticulating with their hands, they're actually giving buy and sell signals with their hands to people that are uh, buying and selling stocks. They actually can do that with multicast and have been for years. So uh, all those concepts which we will talk about, they are not theori theoretical people are really using in their network multicast, correct? That's, that is correct. Yes. And, and of course, like I said, the, the, the most common example uh, is video. Um, another example of video is security cameras where you've got video, server, uh, video services of security cameras being distributed to mm -hmm. multiple destinations. Yeah, there are, uh, we, we will talk about, uh, again, this, there are Three at least application traffic profile. We will talk one to many, many to many, and many to one. But uh, before going there, let's start with the, all those terminology and technology. Let's start with the layer two multicast. Uh, what is IGMP version two, version three? Uh, what is the really important points from the design point of view? Also, yeah. Well, the, the key thing is that. Uh, the current version of IGMP is IGMP version 3. Uh, 
Um, and I say current, it's, it's at least 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, prior to that, we had IGMP version 2. And the difference between the two, primarily, the big difference, mm-hmm. was that in IGMP version 2, uh, a receiver could signal that he wanted to join a multicast group. And as such, he would be receiving any and all sources of multicast traffic to that group. Uh, and, later on, and those, was, re- and those receivers don't have to know all those sources, right? For the version two. And, and that's right. It's, so they, they're basically saying, I don't know who the sources are. Mm-hmm. I just want to receive, uh, any and all mm-hmm. sources transmitting to the group. Mm-hmm. But for uh, the version three, it's totally different. Now we will have include, exclude, exclude lists, all those com- concepts, right? Exactly. Now they can actually signal, uh, I want to, uh, only receive from this particular source uh, on this particular group. And, and the protocol actually allows you to do things like exclude lists, saying I want to receive all multicast traffic for this group, except I want to block this particular sender. That really hasn't been used so much. The key thing that was used about IGMPv3 is the specific signaling of I want this specific source sending to this group and only that. And that was really a huge leap forward um, and uh, took us to what's called SSM, which we'll get to a little bit later. Yes. And uh, uh, let me talk something about IGMP. IGMP stands for Internet Group Management Protocol, right? It is a host to router protocol, actually. It's layer 3 protocol. So... If you have in the middle switch, uh, and if you will do IGMP snooping, which we will talk also uh, about IGMP snooping, then switch needs to uh, open the packets, and then layer 3 packets, and then uh, understand where is the receiver, and then uh, router also will know now uh, which switch uh, actually, router will send the traffic to the switch, and switch will send only the intended uh, receivers. So, uh, IGMP snooping is very important uh, concept, and there are some considerations, right? What is yes. IGMP snooping also, please? Yeah, yes, uh, it, IGMP snooping um, was uh, a, a good idea. It still is a good idea, but when you when we limited it to IGMP version 2, the problem is there's no separation between the control and the data plane. IGMP version 2, a host would signal that he wanted to join a group or leave a group by sending that control information to the multicast group itself. Yes. And so there was a problem implementing that uh, in some of the uh, switches and that they had to listen all the groups, to, not the to, specific groups, correct? Right. In other words, they had to filter through all of the data flowing over the switch, yeah. looking for that one particular uh, control packet that said, I want to join or I want to leave the multicast group. And that was very hard on the switches. And yeah, Especially the only- if the switches uh doing the IGMP snooping, actually trying to do IGMP snooping on the software, correct? Exactly. If if there was no hardware assist ASICs that tended to be very expensive, 
then we even we saw cases of competitors melting uh, their switches down, mm-hmm. uh, trying to implement uh, IGMP snooping. But version 3 is uh, totally different from the IGMP snooping point of view, since you are sending uh the control packets to specific groups and the switch doesn't have to listen all the groups now even for the software implementation they can support IGMP snooping i remember that concept is that correct yeah, that's 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 correct we we learned our lesson i mean that, that's just yeah. like many things in the ietf you know we 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 start off with a protocol that seems good enough to get us off the ground and then we learn from our mistakes. Well, we certainly learned from IGMP version 2. And uh, for IGMP version 3, they came up with a dedicated link local multicast group address uh, that is used for IGMP v3. And so that address is what is used to do all of the signaling. Therefore, the switch simply has to listen mm-hmm. to that group and doesn't have to... Uh, process all the data packets mm-hmm. looking for that needle in the haystack of a control packet. So if uh, if I will use IGMP version 2 or version 3, uh, which one I should use? Version well, you, would really, you really want to implement uh, the use of IGMP version 3 yeah. in your network. Yes, actually um, we will now talk about the protocol in independent multicast. Uh, PIM, all those PIM modes, sparse mode, dance mode, so on and so forth, and especially uh, SSM, source-specific multicast, version uh, 2 doesn't support source-specific multicast, yes, but version 3 supports not only source-specific, also any source multicast, correct? Yes. So if I, if I deploy today version 3, uh, I will support all uh, ASM modes, I can say. Yes, all, all, exactly. Uh, multicast modes, yes. So uh, there is also one thing maybe not so important, but I wanted to talk about CGMP. Also, switch the router protocol. If IGMP uh, hosts the router protocol, uh, host, we are talking about PCs, uh, application on the PCs, so on. Uh, host the router, so CGMP is Switch the router protocol. Uh, it's Cisco specific, uh, Cisco group management protocol. Uh, did you see any implementation for CGMP? Is that really important? What, what you can say? CGMP pretty much is, is out of favor now. Most all, uh, modern vendor switches support mm-hmm. IGMP snooping, mm-hmm. uh, either in the hardware ASICs or uh, IGMP version 3. CGMP basically um, was a Cisco-only proprietary protocol, and it worked in conjunction with the router to uh, instantiate the forwarding state in the switch so that it would uh, forward the multicast traffic only to where there were receivers. But it involved the router. It was proprietary, and um, there were some problems with it. But uh, I, I've got to tell you, I, I haven't heard the term CGMP in a long time because <laughs> most everybody now has has gotten modern switches that that handle uh, IGMP uh, snooping. Okay, let's let's jump to protocol independent multicast and let's start with uh, dense 
dance sparse mode and then uh, again this specific sparse dance mode. Okay. So dense mode was a flood and prune behavior multicast where uh the forwarding model was well we'll just flood the multicast everywhere. Uh and to prevent multicast loops we'll do a an RPF, a reverse path forwarding check where you simply uh look at the arriving packet and see, well, this is from source S. Uh, in my unicast routing table is source S, is the best route to source S via this uh, interface that uh, I just received the packet. Mm-hmm. And if so, then you would go ahead and forward it on out. Um, fundamentally, uh, dense mode was a protocol without a control plane. Uh, as such, it was very non-deterministic where the Packets were flooded everywhere, and then people would signal that, oh, no, I, I, I have no receiver, so prune it off. I, I'm not interested. And, and everything was, well, non-deterministic. It, it, everything depended on the actual arrival times of data packets as to uh, when, uh, what sort of forwarding state got generated in the router. Mm-hmm. Plus the fact it was a flood and prune such that the uh, prunes would periodically time out and you would reflood. Before before yeah. you go to the sparse mode, I want to give an analogy. Uh, when you say the dense mode without the control plane, it uh, reminded me, maybe we can say dense mode is like a bridging and then the sparse mode is like a routing since there is control plane for the sparse mode, uh, but the dense mode is fluid and prune. Actually, you are flooding to everywhere, and uh, if the last top router uh, says there is no uh, any receiver, then the tree will be pruned uh, up to the source, correct? Then uh, the an- analogy is correct? What do you think? Uh, y- yes, it is, although uh, at least in, in, in bridging, uh, you're you're pretty much Doing the same uh, thing. Still, still doing spanning tree, which is a protocol that determines and builds a tree using a protocol. Um, in in the in dense mode, it's it's simply put it on the wire and it goes everywhere. And then then we try to cut it back where it's not wanted. And there's no signaling by uh, any of the routers along the path to mm-hmm. to speak of, other than that prune message coming from the very edges of the network saying. I, I have nobody interested in this, so print it off. Now, the problem we ran into with that is because there, it's non-deterministic. Uh, the state would you get into a situation where if you had a topology change in the network, that you could instantiate a multicast route loop. And traffic could go around and around and get replicated over and over again until you basically, within you know milliseconds, you just flooded the network. The analogy in that would be if you ever had a, a spanning tree loop. Yes, you know how but still uh, you have a chance to uh, control plane to break since uh, there is an uh, IPTTL right there. Well... Uh, not really. <laughs> uh, typically, typically when that happened, yeah, it, it would eventually count down, but it, it, it was never the case that the traffic was just uh, one one multicast packet that you know timed out. It was generally 
data streams. And we actually ran into cases where um, uh, financial institutes had decided, because dense mode seems so much simpler, that they wanted to deploy dense mode, and they did. And then they encountered their first multicast route loop due to a topology transition. Mm-hmm. And because they were sending enough traffic, uh, it just overloaded the network. Uh, the network was so overloaded, and the routers were so overloaded replicating packets that you couldn't log on to the routers to try to break the situations. They basically had to go into wiring closets and power off and disconnect devices to... What about out-of-band management for those devices? Out of band management, um, that might have helped. Yes. <laughs> okay. My, my understanding was they yeah. literally went into the IDFs and began to power down the devices. Yeah, either you will break the, uh, the loop, forwarding loop at the control plane, or manually shut down. Let's let's talk about sparse mode and let's spend our actually we will spend our almost uh, huge amount of time on the sparse mode uh, all those ASM SSM pin binders uh, will be covered under the sparse mode so let's start. So sparse mode is basically the opposite of dense mode. Dense mode is what you might call a push protocol where the traffic is pushed to uh, every. Uh, point in the network, mm-hmm. whereas um, sparse mode, traffic is never sent to any point in the network unless it is specifically requested via some sort of a control plane message. In this particular case, um, a PIM join or at its most fundamental, uh, the receiver joining via IGMP uh, membership report, which mm-hmm. we often called as a IGMP join. So, that's a completely different model, and because of that, we actually have uh, a signaling plane, if you will, that signals the building of the trees and the tearing down of the trees that is deterministic and uh, allows for a much more stable behavior over dense mode. Okay, now uh, let me talk about some, uh, again, terminology. We have first of router. We have last hop router. So, uh, first hop router is the first router which sees the uh, multicast feed, right? And it's actually the closest router also to the source. Last hop router is the where the receiver is connected. So, uh, the receivers will they will send the IGMP membership membership report, which is IGMP join, yes, to the router last hop router. Then. This IGMP join will be uh, converted as, we can say convert maybe, to the PIM join and it will go up this control plane packet. PIM join will go up to the randomness point or uh, to the source, depends on the uh, which mode we will talk. Uh, this is happening, right? Yes. So let's talk about the very original PIM model, which we now call any source multicast, and that requires a third type of a router that you alluded to called a rendezvous point. Yes. Now, the idea here is that the receiver signals that he wants the multicast traffic via IGMP that goes to his uh, locally connected router. That router will signal uh, a join of what we call a shared tree by sending 
PIM join packets in the direction of the rendezvous point. Yes. And that's where the shared trees are always rooted. Now, once that process has happened hop by hop, it builds forwarding state for the shared tree branch all the way down to the receiver. So now that any traffic that's coming from the rendezvous point can flow down to the receiver. Now, at this point, uh, let's assume just we have a receiver, but we don't have uh, yet a source. So uh, we will build a shared tree from the receiver up to the rendezvous point. And then once the source comes, by the way, there is no authorization or authentication, nothing. Once source comes, they will just send the multicast feed. And then uh, something also, some tree needs to build between the uh, rendezvous point and the source. So, can you continue? Exactly. Yeah. So, and you make a good point. Um, IGMP is only a signaling protocol to say, I want to receive. There is no protocol in multicast that says, I request to send, and then you get a clear to send back from the router or some other device. Mm -hmm. So the only thing the source has to do is just send, and he assumes that it will get delivered to the receivers. So we've talked about how we've already built a branch of a shared tree from the rendezvous point down to the receiver, but now we need to get the source traffic all the way over to the rendezvous point so that it can go down the shared tree. Yeah. Well, that's a fairly uh, complex process. The first thing that and happens... And CPU-intensive process also. Yes, it is, because yeah. this is handled by the CPU, onboard CPU, right. the route processor, and the router. Mm -hmm. And what has to happen is, as soon as the first hop router directly connected to the source mm -hmm. uh, receive, begins receiving this multicast traffic, he has to build multicast forwarding state, we call it an S, G entry, S for source, G for group. Mm -hmm. And then he has to tunnel or encapsulate Encapsulates in the unicast, traffic. correct? Yes, he encapsulates it in a unicast. It's just mm -hmm. like an IPv4 tunnel. Mm -hmm. And he sends that traffic to the rendezvous point. Mm -hmm. this, this serves two purposes. The first purpose is that it delivers the very first packets that the source is sending immediately to the rendezvous point via this tunnel. Now, both ends of the tunnel are having to do... Uh, software level de-encapsulation of the traffic, mm -hmm. or encapsulation and de-encapsulation. So as you said, this is, this yeah, is yeah. CPU intensive. Intense, yeah. So we don't want that to continue. This process is called the reg the PIM registration process. Yes. And what it does is it tells the rendezvous point that there is a source for this particular multicast curve. Now, the second half, the second thing that this does uh, by telling the rendezvous point of the existence of the source, the rendezvous point will send PIM joins in the direction of the source to build a shortest path tree or a source tree from the source to the rendezvous point. And the reason you want to do that is because those PIM joins travel hop by hop in the direction of the source, and all along that path they instantiate hardware forwarding state and all of those routers. Yes. So once that process completes all the way back to the first top router, we now have a hardware-switched forwarding path that can be used to transmit the multicast traffic to the rendezvous point. 
If we don't do that, by the way, two things will happen, I believe. Uh, the dub duplicate packets will come to the RP. Actually, uh, once we build the shortest path tree from the randomness point to the source, and then now source is continuing to send multicast inside the unicast, encapsulated one. Then once you build also shortest path tree, the multicast, pure multicast will go to the randomness point. So two copy of the same multicast stream will go to the uh, RP. One is very also CPU intensive. So at some point we want to drop the unicast one, correct? Yes, we want to shut that off. And, mm -hmm. and, and the way that happens is as soon as the rendezvous point detects that he is receiving the source traffic via the shared tree, he now knows that, excuse me, the source tree. Yeah, yeah. He, he now knows that the, the hardware switch path is now established successfully. Mm -hmm. And he, he sets, uh, in iOS, they call it the T flag. And that tells him the tree is built. And we no longer now need the unicast tunnel packets. Yep. So he will send back to the first top router a register stop message via unicast mm -hmm. telling that first top router we can stop the tunneling of this particular source's traffic to mm -hmm. the rendezvous. And so that's what yep. causes the tunnel to be torn down and relieves those two, two routers of the CPU intensive traffic. Now, I might point out that if anything goes wrong mm -hmm. during this time mm -hmm. and the tree never is successfully built, maybe you forgot to turn on PIM on one of the key interfaces along the path, mm -hmm. then you have these routers stuck in registering and the CPU load uh, impact on the routers continues. And if this is a high rate video stream, that can be pretty intense. Mm, yes, actually, that's why uh, this this process should be handled by the hardware. And I know uh, Juniper is not supporting, uh, as I am remembering correctly, supporting it software. They uh, use one hardware there. I, I don't remember the name, but uh, it's hardware actually handled this process, pin register, and then uh, register stop. This process, really CPU intensive, as you said, even router can crash, correct? Yes, yes. Yeah. Then at this point, what we have now, from the receiver up to the randomness point, we have a shared tree, and assume everything is correct, then randomness point to the source, we have a uh, short path tree, source tree, which is the same. So as soon as the source traffic comes to the receiver, then we will also do something different, right? Uh, something, yeah, actually we will create a shortest path tree now from receiver up to the source. Yes, except minor correction. This happens at the last top router, and he's the one that detects the arrival. Yes, from last, uh, last top router. To the, up to the source. I'm saying receiver, but uh, always I'm thinking receivers connected to the last of routers. Yeah, you are right. Then uh, now, actually, there is also threshold you can define, and maybe you will, you may not continue to the short path tree from source yes. to the last of router. Would you want to continue uh, over Randu's point and share tree, or 
Is there a benefit? There, there are some some cases where people have decided that they don't want to cut over to the shortest path tree, mm-hmm. and so there are effectively two settings. Uh, there was originally a threshold. The thought was um, maybe we wait until the amount of source traffic gets above a threshold before we cut over, and then maybe if it drops below that threshold, uh, then we'll cut back over to the shared tree. Fundamentally, that didn't work, and so we were only left with two settings, and that was a threshold of zero or infinity. Zero meaning never mm-hmm. cut over to the shortest path tree, or excuse me, uh, uh, oh, immediately yes. cut over to the shortest path tree, and infinity never cut over. Okay. Now, we were talking about uh, any source multicast, which receivers sends the join for the old multicast sources. Actually, it doesn't... When the last hop receiver receives the very first packet from a source uh, to a group for which he has a directly connected receiver. Let me emphasize that. He has a directly connected receiver. Mm-hmm. The normal thing is for him to immediately attempt to join the shortest path tree. And so he does just like the rendezvous point did. And he sends PIM join messages in the direction of the source and builds a, a hardware switch path through the network to deliver the source traffic uh, down to the um, receiver, bypassing the rendezvous point. Now, once that has been successfully set up, at some point along the path to the shared tree, uh, to the rendezvous point, there'll be a spot where that shortest path tree and the shared tree diverge. At that point, that router will send a thing called an S, G, RP bit prune. And the purpose of this is to prune off that particular flow from coming down the shared tree. Mm-hmm. So he will send that up the shared tree, telling all the routers along that path, we don't need this source and group traffic anymore because we're receiving it via the shortest path tree. Now, let's assume that that was the only receiver. If that was the only receiver all the way back up to the rendezvous point and he off the one and only interface he was sending this traffic down, he no longer needs that traffic from the So, in that case, he will send a message towards the source and tear down the original shortest path tree that he was using to receive from the source. Yeah. So there's a lot of lot of protocol stuff going on in in all of that. Really, what was the whole purpose of the rendezvous point in the shared tree? It's source discovery. Yeah. That's all that this was. Now, if the receiver knew or the the router, laptop router knew already what sources to join for the group. We could have bypassed all of that complexity. And I've only scratched the surface. There's a lot of other things that go on uh, for state maintenance and, uh, you know, keeping uh, track of things. So if another receiver joins, the rendezvous point can go through the same process all over again. There is a lot of what I call monkey motion in the protocol simply to do source discovery. Yeah, definitely. Sparse mode, actually, uh, may be a good idea, but we need to also think about the rendezvous point. And since it's very critical, 
how we will uh, make it redundant. So let's talk about the randomness point placement and also how we can achieve the uh, redundancy load balancing for the randomness point for the sparse mode before going to from ASM to SSM. Actually, still uh, for the source specific multicast, we will use sparse mode. We were talking about the any source multicast which we, the receiver don't know about the sources but they just wanted to receive the multicast traffic from any source that's why we called it any source multicast but for the source specific multicast source specific so they should know the receiver should know uh, what the uh, source they wanted the traffic actually take from so for the source specific multicast we still use sparse mode but there is no randomness point there is nothing uh, randomness point concept there so maybe it can be it can be better for the ease of management configuration complexity for all those design point of view but uh, let's let's finish the uh, randomness point how we can also have the routers know about the randomness point uh, let's let's first start how the routers know the randomness point actually? What um, are the mechanisms there? There's several mechanisms. Um, there is, of course, static configuration of the address of the rendezvous point. Mm -hmm. But there's also uh, a couple of protocols whose intent was to elect a rendezvous point mm -hmm. uh, or rendezvous points and communicate those election results mm -hmm. to the individual uh, routers in the network so that they would all know and agree upon who the rendezvous point is. You can, you can imagine if uh -huh. the routers in the network didn't all agree on where the rendezvous point was, um, some pretty uh, strange behaviors in your multicast network would occur. So it's very important that they all agree on that. For the, well, uh, sorry, for the static... RP assignments for uh, we we need to go to the all the routers and we need to say this is the randomness point this IP address uh, is the randomness point but the important things maybe we need to say we need to also configure the randomness point IP on the randomness point correct on yes the, the the rendezvous point itself has to be configured correct. Uh, to know uh, what the address of the rendezvous point is mm -hmm. then and there, there I, are I, Sorry. It's like you, 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 you configure it on the, the rendezvous point router and the rendezvous point goes, oh, well, this is the address of the rendezvous point. Oh, hey. I am that's not the rendezvous point. <laughs> I am I'm the rendezvous point. Okay. All right. Well, I guess I better get busy and do rendezvous point sort of things. Yeah. Uh, otherwise it will say, I'm not the rendezvous point. Why are you aren't sending the podcast to me? Exactly. If you don't configure it, then you'll, you'll yeah. get, well, like I said, Strange things happen when you have misconfiguration in your multicast network mm -hmm. of the rendezvous points. Yeah. Then there are two dynamic mechanisms. One is against a specific one, AutoRP, and then the other is standard BSR, bootstrap router. Let's talk about uh, AutoRP and then BSR. Okay. Let's start with AutoRP. That mm -hmm. was originally a Cisco uh, proprietary protocol, mm -hmm. although it was so straightforward that uh, other vendors uh, reverse engineered it and began to support it. And the idea there was that we'll use two multicast groups in dense mode so that um, uh, we will do the election mechanism via the one of those groups, and then we'll 
inform the uh, routers in the network who won the election via the other uh, dense mode group. So basically all the routers in the network will automatically join um, one of the AutoRP groups and listen to hear the election results. Mm -hmm. The other routers that were configured to be candidates for the election will um, will um, multicast their candidacy on the other group, and uh, some of the routers that were configured to be the election officials, what we call mapping agents, mm -hmm. would do the decision process and decide who was elected, and then communicate that out to the rest of the uh, network. Okay. Well, in a nutshell, that was that was auto RP. But a key point here is, of course, it had to use two multicast groups in dense mode for auto RP. Yeah, those 39 and 40 for the uh, intent, uh, auto RP in the listener. Uh, but those groups need to be used through the dance mode, correct? So uh, exactly. we know there is also chicken and egg problem there, correct? So that's why Cisco with the auto RP you need to either use sparse dance mode or you will use auto RP listener. Can you explain those two concepts? There's yes, there's a lot of confusion around that. Um, there there is the mode that the multicast group operates in, mm -hmm. and then there is the mode that the interface operates in. Mm -hmm. Okay. What most people are familiar with is the interface mode commands of IPPIM sparse mode, IPPIM dense mode, or IPPIM sparse dense mode, which I think is a horrible name. <laughs> it should have been called IPPIM dynamic mode. Okay. Because if you put simply IPPIM sparse mode on an interface, you've told that interface that it's to strictly behave in a sparse mode fashion. Likewise, if you put IPPIM dense mode on that interface, you've told it to behave strictly in the flood and prune behavior. Okay. Well, we want to run sparse mode, but we want to run auto RP as well, and auto RP needs a couple of dense mode groups. So they came up with a command called IPPIM sparse dense mode. Which Actually, those I two, for the only those two groups, we are running dense mode, but we changed the name as sparse dense, correct? Yes, but the problem is, is it's the, the IPPEM sparse dense mode command is not specific to any group. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so if any group. If we don't have RP for yeah, if we don't have uh, RP randomness point for any group, actually those group will be behaved dense mode. Is that correct? Exactly, yeah. and, and you've just basically hit on the mechanism by which the router decides whether a multicast group. Is it dense mode group or a sparse mode group? Mm -hmm. okay. That's independent of the interface configuration. Mm -hmm. So if the router knows that there is a rendezvous point for these multicast group, this multicast group range, those will operate in sparse mode. If it has no rendezvous point known for a particular multicast group range, those multicast groups will operate in dense mode. That's the difference between the actual group mode and what the interface does. So IPPIM sparse dense mode mm -hmm. was an interface command saying if this particular group is operating in dense mode, do the dense mode behavior. If it's a sparse mode group, then do the sparse mode behavior. 
I like to think of it as IPPIM dynamic mode. Mm, nice trick. Thank you. Uh, then I believe now the sparse mode, sparse dense and dense is clear. We talked about also any source multicast. We didn't talk yet uh, source specific multicast. Let's also... Well, let, yeah. before we do that, let's very quickly... There's one other mechanism called BSR, bootstrap router. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that can also be used to communicate uh, the election of a rendezvous point from a set of candidates, Mm -hmm. routers, uh, so that you elect uh, which routers will uh, serve as the rendezvous point or points for a multicast group. Mm -hmm. Uh, That doesn't use dense mode per se, but it uses a uh, election mechanism that is very, very similar to the root bridge election mechanism in spanning tree. Yeah. And in 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 saying that, all the routers participate actively in the election mechanism, just like they all participate in the root bridge election uh, in, a, in a layer two network. So because they participated in the election mechanism, when the election is over they already automatically know um, who has been elected as the bootstrap router. That's what we're electing is the bootstrap router. Actually, now, yeah, yeah. Uh, why you are saying this, I believe uh, the reason uh, for the auto RP, the mapping, mapping agent is deciding based on priority or IP address, which one is the higher. Mapping agent is deciding who will be the uh, rendezvous point. But for the BSR... For the bootstrap router, you are, we are distributing to the routers that who will be the BSR, then they are using hashing algorithm there, then they choose the BSR, and all of them has the consistent view for the BSR. Is that correct? That's right. Just yeah. like in spanning tree, everybody has, as long as the protocol has not been broken by something, mm-hmm. uh, a consistent view of who has elected the root bridge. Yeah. So now, since everybody in the network has elected the bootstrap router, uh, that's where everybody goes uh, to learn about the rendezvous point. Mm-hmm. And by the same to- token, if one of the routers is configured to be a candidate as a rendezvous point, they simply, now that they know who the BSR is, they just unicast their candidacy directly to the bootstrap router, and then he does the election and then he sends out the election results of who is going to be rendezvous point for what group via his bootstrap periodic bootstrap router messages, which are flooded through the network, not via dense mode, but simply hop-by-hop hop flooding, very, very similar to uh, BPDUs in spanning tree. Right, right. Let's, let's continue with uh, SSM, source-specific multicast. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things we quickly found with ASM mm-hmm. was Captain Midnight scenario, and that was, well, we're using uh, the original form of multicast, which we call now uh, any source multicast, uh, to deliver one-to-many content. Uh, for example, John Chambers is doing a fireside chat with all of the Cisco employees inside the company. Mm-hmm. So we have one source of video and audio, And so all of the receivers join the multicast group using ASM. The problem is they're joining the group and they can receive from any sources. So at any time, any other source can begin sending to the same uh, group 
And that traffic is going to be delivered by the network to all the receivers. We, we, we actually had that happen to us in the early days of multicast inside mm-hmm. of Cisco when we were trying to do a, a company-wide fireside chat. I, I don't remember whether it was John Chambers or not, but we were having problems. And certain areas of the network were not receiving it. So some of the guys uh, in that area of the network got on the audio tool and began sending audio on that particular multicast group, talking amongst themselves, trying to debug what the problem was with the state and the routers. Well, the problem with that was that traffic was actually making it to other parts of the network and competing with John Chambers. Okay. So everybody's trying to listen to John, and here you got all these guys chit-chatting about S, G state and their network and the routers and the network interfering with the broadcast. That was highly undesirable. You mean so, uh, there is one source, and if you are using ASM, you will get uh, uh, multicast traffic from that source, but since there is no authorization, as I said, and authentication mechanism, so source will start send traffic, And now there is two source for the same group, so they can, it will be conflict, correct? Then you are saying we are, if we use SSM source, we, we will now define the, which source, the, uh, exactly which source we want to traffic from, then we will solve this problem. But then exactly. I, yeah, but the thing is, why we are not using, or we are not implementing some authentication uh, mechanisms there? Well, the protocol, the protocol just simply never had, uh, authentication mechanisms built in it. Now, certainly mm-hmm. you, you've got IPsec and those sort of things that, that might have been able to do that. Well, that's not the direction that they took. Um, let's write a it bunch of things, <laughs> A bunch of things came together all at once. Uh-huh. IGPv3, um, The, the thoughts about, you know, we've got a one-to-many stream here. We don't want somebody, you know, broadcasting over it. We, we used to call that the Captain Midnight problem, where mm-hmm. Captain Midnight interrupted John Chambers' broadcast by, you know, you know, sending whatever message he wanted on top of it, and you, and you received both. And so the combination of IGMPv3 and uh, the complexities of the ASM model uh, took us to what we call source-specific multicast. And that had a lot of benefits. So Now, for the one-to-many application you said, correct? Like this kind of presentation, maybe website content distribution, and even television, right? One-to-many application we can think about. Now, if we are using then ASM, any source multicast there, and by default, by the way, if you configure the sparse mode with the version 2, you will use ASM. So there is always this chance to interfere the traffic. Is that correct? Exactly. There's nothing to prevent mm-hmm. any other source from sending to that group and the receivers who have joined that group from receiving that traffic. Then we can say from the security point of view, version 3 with the SSM is more secure than version 2 ASM. Or version exactly. 3, even version 3 ASM. Exactly, and it, and it had an additional advantage because at the time we were trying to do uh, a lot more uh, interdomain, internet-wide multicast, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of problems of figuring out how do we allocate group addresses so one content provider on the internet in one location 
would have his addresses, and another would have his addresses, and they wouldn't conflict. When we came out with SSM, now a particular multicast flow is not defined by group address alone. It's defined by source and group. And the group address, yeah. So, so basically, every content provider in the world could transmit content using the same multicast group and not interfere with each other. So the way but that the that thing works, is also uh, source and group, uh, those two can be uh, also match between because we IANA uh, actually allocated a 232 slash 8 for the SSM use, so still uh, can be conflict, correct? No, not really. If you stop and think about it, now of course the 232 slash 8 was the IANA allocated block mm-hmm. for default SSM, but that's really not cast in stone, okay? Uh, that's the, the range we want everybody to use. However, if two service providers pick the same address out of the 232, we'll just say 232.1.1.1, mm-hmm. and both transmitting on it, they're going to transmit it with two different source addresses. And since the source plus the group address uniquely identify the flow, they can't cross each other. They can't get intermixed if you're right. using SSM. So that was the other advantage that we that that uh, we found when they came up with the idea of SSM. Now, there's a downside to SSM. Still, I, that, I, I was thinking, by the way, some uh, complex interest VPN uh, can be, but let's not go there. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, the downside of SSM, depending on your point of view, mm-hmm. is that you're no longer doing source discovery. Yeah. Or in 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 nodes. Okay. Um, or that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Also, uh, you don't have to have rendezvous point. If all you're doing is one to many multicast, mm-hmm. all of the complexities involved with the protocol that we, we described earlier for ASM and all the, what I called, monkey motion of the <laughs> protocol, just to do source discovery, <laughs> is eliminated. Yeah. In addition to that, if we don't have to have rendezvous points, all the complexities of running ASM, I mean, or excuse me, auto RP and BSR or static RP configuration and redundant RP configurations Go out the window. We no longer need it. And the multicast becomes super, super simple and reliable. Yeah. But the end nodes have to know what source address is needed. Well, a lot of providers would go, well, well, you know, how do they know that? Well, the answer is, well, how did they, how did your application know which group to join? Oh, well, we had a directory service. Yeah. Yeah. Put it in the directory, sir. A very good example would be IPTV, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's an unfortunate thing, however, that IGMP version 3 is over 10 years old. Yeah. We are still suffering today from vendors selling applications that are clearly one-to-many, video applications being one of the most popular, but yet they have not taken the steps to encode in their client uh, 
IGMP v3 calls mm -hmm. so that they do the source and group signaling instead of just group signaling. That results in people who use their product having to build complex ASM multicast networks uh, with all the monkey motion and all the router, uh, the, the RP redundancy problems and places for that to break their network and sometimes melt their network down just because those vendors have been lazy for 10 years and still not encoded the IGMP v3 calls uh, in their application. It's, it's really sad. Okay. But this specific question. Uh, now we talked about one to many. What about, let's say, we have video surveillance, thousands of camera, and then we have just a couple of receivers, okay? So many to one, once we think about which one is more suitable for that? ASM, SSM, or maybe not? Maybe uh, something else? Not yeah. so, not, I would say Bider, but for Bider. We haven't maybe, covered that. Yeah, we will cover it. Yeah, yeah, so, so we'll call that the something else for the moment. Okay. Still, if you have, um, what you call many to few. Yes. Alright. Yeah. Um. Even monitoring application maybe, but video surveillance is, yeah. In a lot of cases, SSM is still applicable in that particular um, scenario because while it may be many, they're probably a fixed set of many sources, okay? And that's the key here. If there's a fixed and well-known set of sources that are transmitting to a few, then you can still use SSM. But if you think a thousand, of that, thousands of sources now, what will Okay, well... It's still, if they're well known, if they're well known, transmitting to a few. But what about the really what about the states for the routers? They they need to state those all SKMG entries, so it will be also the control plane load problem, right? It, well, it it might be. Although with advances in the hardware uh, of most of the routers nowadays, the amount of S G state forwarding state that they can uh, manage. But also from the application point of view, uh, Bo, if you need to now configure all those IP addresses, right, on the application for the sources. So if you have really thousands, configuration complexity will be there and also control plane will be yeah, there. So I'm, not, I'm not sure I, I, I agree with that at the application. As long as it's well known, uh -huh. it's it's the application could easily uh -huh. learn who those who those nodes are. Now, the, the key here is well-known, and what does that mean, okay? If it's, you know, something that's uh, statically configured and uh, communicated via directory service to the end host, that's no problem. On the other hand, though, what if you have thousands of hosts that come and go that various receivers want to receive? Now you no longer have a well-known set. And in this particular case, uh, you're starting to approach often the many-to-many -many or many-to-few environment. But typically we run into this in the many-to-many, -many, which tends to be the non-well-known set of sources. So what do you do there? Now you're starting to get quite a bit of state within the routers. 
Yes, um, that's why. And, <laughs> and if you if you don't have a well-known or directory service, mm-hmm. then the end receivers simply don't know who to signal via uh, uh, IGMP v3 which sourcing group that they want to receive. Then it will be really cumbersome to configure yes. all those uh, yeah sources. So that's why actually this this was a problem, or some people thought that this this is a problem. Maybe a couple thousands of uh, source and SCMG entries, so control plane load. And that's why the another flavor, I'm saying, of PIM came out, which is bi-directional PIM. There is no SCMG now. With the uh, SSM, what we get, uh, there is no rendezvous point, there is no all those complexities. And we, we, we just need to know where the source is, what's the source IPs, those concepts. Uh, for the pinbinder, we also now don't don't have any SCMG entry. We just, which means shortest path tree, by the way, because if you know the sh- uh, sources, you can build from the last operator to the source uh, the sh- shortest path tree, source tree. But with pin bidirectional pin, you don't have also SCMG entry, which means you need to have shared tree, you need to have, yes, RP uh, there, but you will avoid all those SCMG entries, so control plane will be much simpler. Uh, let's let's talk about uh, bidirectional PIM, where it is really applicable, suitable. Yeah. Well, Binder PIM was born out of the financial industry, who yeah. was doing the many-to-many multicast that I talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the sources were not well known. You know, traders could come and go from the trading floor, so to speak, and, and thereby become a source and then disappear as a source and a receiver. So it was a very dynamic environment. And back then the routers were not as capable as they are today of maintaining, uh, the S comma G state. And you began to get more S comma G state in the network than the routers could handle. So the thought was, well, what if we just stayed on the shared tree? Okay, fine. We'll set the threshold to stay on the shared tree. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, wait, that doesn't completely eliminate the source trees. You still have to have a source tree Definitely. from each source to the rendezvous point. Well, okay, let's put the rendezvous points right next to the source. Well, sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't, but you still have a lot of state in the rendezvous point. Mm-hmm. And you still have all of the monkey motion and all of that. So as long as somebody still, says... Still you need to consider where you will put the rendezvous point and then uh, redundancy, so on and so forth, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So somebody said, well, you know, what if we could just do everything on the shared tree? Definitely. Well, we can't do that because the shared tree is unidirectional. In order to avoid multicast route loops, we only let traffic flow down a tree from the root down to the leaves. So you are not doing you are not doing sorry you are not doing any more RPF check. That would cause a loop, yes. <laughs> so or, or potentially could. So what we would really like to do is allow traffic to flow up and down the shared tree. Mm-hmm. So they came up with a new mechanism based around a concept called designated forwarder. Mm-hmm. And that manage to eliminate the possibility of a loop. And as a result, now you could have a binder share tree where you would agree that this particular address in the network is the rendezvous point, location. 
Notice I said location. Yeah. Okay, we'll come back to that. So now we can let source traffic flow up the shared tree towards the rendezvous point and then back down all the other branches of the rendezvous point to, re to reach all the receivers. Mm -hmm. That means that at each router in the network, at most, there's one entry for that particular binary group, one Starcom G entry, regardless of whether we have one, a hundred, a thousand, or a hundred thousand sources active in the network. So that really solved the, um, the, 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 the S comma G uh, state explosion problem. State, yeah, explosion I would say also. Yeah. Now let's go back to that comment I said we agreed upon the location in the network of the rendezvous point. Mm -hmm. And remember in ASM the rendezvous point is used strictly to do source discovery and you have all of that register tunneling and you've got the, you know, join to the shortest path tree and pull the traffic to the RP. Really what that rendezvous point is doing I like to call it, I, I refer to it as this. The rendezvous point is the multicast dating service of your network. Mm -hmm. And basically what it is, is this is where senders and receivers come together, go out on a <laughs> date, and then have shortest path trees together. Yeah, the dating okay? service. So that's all it's doing is the dating service of source discovery. All right? Mm -hmm. Well, if we don't need to do source discovery, which is the case in SSM, mm -hmm. and now in BIDER we don't need to do it because source traffic just goes up to a point in the network and flows back down, there's really no source discovery to be done. So there's no actual functionality of a rendezvous point in BIDER. Therefore, you don't really have to have a physical router perform that function. You just have to have some location in the network that everybody agrees to as that is the location of the rendezvous point. So that right there also greatly simplifies, number one, the operation of your network because we don't have all of the ASM monkey motion. We don't have source discovery and we're down to a single star comma G entry regardless of how many sources we have flowing in our network. We also don't have that monkey motion of the register process. And remember we talked about if something goes wrong in the register process, the routers can get stuck in register mm -hmm. and melt down the routers. Mm -hmm. That's no longer a problem now. That doesn't happen. So no. BIDER itself mm -hmm. is also quantum leap forward in the protocols of multicast. No, uh, bidirectional PIM the really different from the ASM-SSM from unidirectional and bidirectional point of view. Or ASM and SSM unidirectional, which means source will send only the receiver, but receiver is receiver, not the source uh, also. But with the PIM, bidirectional PIM, receiver also can be source, source can be also receiver. This is the, this is the thing. But all actually have pros and cons, as I have seen. For the binder, what I just, what I can say is, pin binder also, you can now create a suboptimal path, since all the traffic has to go through the rendezvous point and then down to the receiver. So this is, this can really create a, a suboptimality. You can eliminate this suboptimality with the 
uh, SSM, but SSM will create also those SCMG entries. And if you have really too many sources, then it will be a problem for the control plane devices. ASM will start from the receiver up to the rendezvous point shared tree and then rendezvous point to the source uh, shortest path tree. But eventually, once the receiver sees the traffic, it will create shortest path tree again, source tree. So, uh, Again, SKMG entry will be there. All, exactly. all have pros and cons. Then, exactly. what, we sh what we should say maybe, we should know the application. We should know the, actually the, uh, traffic pattern. Once I think about this, okay, we have, I, I, I can define four kind of application traffic profile, traffic pattern. Like one to one, which is unicast, then uh, many. Once many involves, it can be one to many, many to many, and many to one. And I believe uh, we, sh we should go like this. One to many, for example, SSM is the best one, maybe we can say, and many to many, Binder created because of the many to uh, for the many to many applications, and then many to one ASM. Maybe we, uh, can we say this? Uh, th that's a a good ASM? generalization. Although okay. I would I would hesitate to say uh, the many to one also has to be uh, ASM. The, but you're on the right track here. The key thing that mm -hmm. you pointed out here is we need to know what this application that's being put onto our network does and how it behaves with multicast. In unicast, it's a, it's the old field of dreams thing, you know. If you build it, the users will come and you just let them use the network. But in multicast, you just don't want to build it and just let users come willy-nilly. You really want to talk to the users, the people putting the multicast applications on your network and find out how does it work? Is it one to many? Is it many to many? Is it many to few? If it's many to few, is it a well-known static set of um, uh, sources that maybe we could still use SSM? How much how much uh, bandwidth is being used? What is the scope of the multicast? Does it have mm -hmm. to be constrained to just this campus, or can it go all the way around the world? Um, what is the latency requirements? Can we use BIDER, even though BIDER take suboptimal paths. These are questions that you really need to be uh, asking of your application people that are deploying multicast in your network because now multicast and the network people really need to go hand in hand when new things get deployed. Otherwise, bad things happen. Okay. I believe we, we need to also cover now all the redundancy, anycast RP, MSDP, phantom RP, and how the, they can be used for load balancing and redundancy purpose. And then applications, actually, we need to talk about in the data center, maybe in the campus also, but uh, mainly in the data center, such as OTVVX, LAN, maybe a couple more application. And then what really multicast will go, where it will go, uh, what's the future of the multicast? And uh, also another uh, topic we need to con today cover is IP version 6 multicast. And uh, for those, I believe for those all, concept let's do the second part of uh, this podcast since this is really now long uh, for the pocket pushers uh, but before before we close today podcast i want to ask 
since I know you are also doing a consultancy, you are giving a consultancy for many companies for the multicast. What do you see in general? What they want to use that you are deploying, you are designing for uh, those companies? ASM, SSM, Pinbinder, uh, Sparse Mode, or what, what you are doing there in real life? Well, I think the answer to that is it depends. Okay. Uh, every company is different, and the questions that I, I, I just brought up about what are you doing with the application and how does it work mm -hmm. really dictates what we use in a particular network. In some networks, we, we've been able to simply say, you know what, we're only going to enable SSM in the network because we know the one and only application that we want to run is strictly one-to-many video. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we want to use the SSM model and eliminate all the other complexities. Now, that's not always the case. There are some cases where, you know, we've got many-to-many -many and we want to use BIDER and we can use BIDER. But there's other cases where, well, we have some other applications that can't do SSM um, and they're really not BIDER. Uh, and we want shortest path trees for low latency. Therefore, we need to do a limited amount of ASM. So it really depends. And, um, you know, what, what I've been doing uh, when I do some of the uh, on-the-side consulting work on multicast is basically focusing people on answering those questions so that they can make the proper decisions about which mode to run and how to configure redundancy in the network for rendezvous points uh, and so forth um, to deploy multicast. And quite frankly, a lot of the consulting that I do is simply a, on an educational basis. Let me explain to you how this really works. So mm -hmm. now that you understand how it really works, uh, you're better in a position mm -hmm. to decide, you know, how to make all of the decisions necessary on which mode to use, which multicast groups to enable, which to disable, and so forth. Then you are helping them uh, at the design process process so they can choose they can choose the best design for them right that's right as well as educating them so going forward they don't need to call me they can actually <laughs> understand ah i know now how this works i know what the monkey motion is and so i know how to design for that okay then let's call this part one for the multicast series anymore and then uh, for the second uh, part of the multicast series, we will talk about Anycast RP, MSDP, Phantom RP. So with this ASM, Anycast RP will be there. For the Bider, Phantom RP will be there. And then for the Anycast RP, MSDP will be there, but not for the Phantom RP. You will not use the MSDP. We will talk about those kind of concepts. Uh, load balancing can be achieved with the Anycast RP, but not with the Phantom RP, so why not? We will talk about those. And then applications, OTV and VXLAN, actually I was thinking uh, that we need to talk, but please write uh, the comments uh, if you want to also, if you want us to talk uh, specific application, please let me see all, all those uh, application comments. So uh, we will also talk the IP version 6 multicast, those fancy embedded RP and solicited node multicast, all those concepts. Uh, let's uh, handle all all of them in the second part of the uh, multicast series. What do you want to say as a last, Bob? Oh, 
I, I think uh, given all of the topics that we covered today, plus mm-hmm. all the topics that we're going to mm-hmm. really just scratch the surface on in the second one, I think you can probably see why I think the next multicast book these guys are <laughs> writing is going to be uh, quite a Bible. So there's a lot to it. Yes, anyway, now you, you, you said 850 pages, so really... That, that, that's what I, the rumors I'm hearing. <laughs> okay, thank you very much, Bo, uh, today for attending, joining the podcast. It was really uh, useful. Thank you very much again. It's been my pleasure.